Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. You are listening to the Build Your Network podcast. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I am sitting down with Alex Benayan. Alex is the youngest best-selling business author in American history. The Third Door chronicles Benayan's seven-year quest to uncover the definitive mindset of exponential growth and success. The book was a smash hit. It's a number one international bestseller and has been translated into more than a dozen languages. Over the course of his unprecedented journey, Benayan's research led him to interview uh, really a ton of these innovative leaders of the past half century, including people like Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Larry King, Maya Angelou, uh, Steve Wozniak, uh, Jane, Jane Goodall, Jessica Alba, just so many uh, of these top level people that you guys hear from all the time that he was able to interview during this journey to write this book. Uh, he's been named to Forbes 30 under 30 list and Business Insider's most powerful people under 30, which would make him really 
our generation, the millennial generation's leading expert in high performance and personal development. Um, he's also been featured in CNB, CNBC, uh, Fortune, Business Week, Washington Post, MSNBC, Fox, NBC News, um, you know, you name it, he's been there. He's a renowned keynote speaker and has presented the Third Door Framework uh, to little known companies, you know, places like Apple, Google, Nike, IBM, Snapchat, Salesforce, uh, Delta Airlines, Kaiser Permanente, MasterCard, Disney. I mean, the best of the best. Guys, it's going to be such a fun conversation I'm going to have here with Alex. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, my man. Dude, thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I appreciate the enthusiasm a lot with that warm up. Oh yeah, dude. I mean, uh, it's it's easy to be enthusiastic when there's so many awesome things to go through in the bio. You know what I mean? Sometimes, uh, sometimes it's a stretch. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes it's like you got like one line. You got to like try to make it sound awesome. You know? And it's like, oh, another Amazon bestseller. And it's like, uh, how do I turn this into awesomeness? You know? But uh, with one, something like that, it's not that difficult, bro. So I appreciate you taking the time. Dude, thank you, man. I'm very excited to be here. So something that I think you and I have in common is the power of credibility that comes from positioning yourself in the same conversation with people that your ideal audience already knows, likes, trusts, Mm. or recognizes. I want to get into that conversation with you. So I want to bring it up at the beginning, but before we do, let's rewind the clock, build some context for those listening. Talk about 11, 12-year-old Alex Benayan, set the scene for us <laughs> and tell us what it was like growing up being you. 11, 12-year-old Alex was 100% certain he was going to be a doctor. Mm. 100%. No, there was no even wiggle room. Uh, you know, I'm was the that family person. pressures or was that you or both? Well, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I thought, oh, this is a great idea. Yeah, it was, you know, in hindsight, it was family. Um, you know, I'm the son of Persian Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came Dr. out of the Lawyer. womb. Yeah, my mom stamped MD on my behind and sent me on my <laughs> way. And you know, you think it's funny, but dude, I'm not, I don't kid. I, I literally wore scrubs to school for Halloween in third grade and thought I was cool. Now, that was my childhood growing up. And high school, I checked on the boxes, took all the biology classes, studied for the SATs. I went to pre med summer camp. So by the time I get to college, I'm the pre med of pre meds. But very quickly, I find myself lying on this dorm room bed, going through the what I want to do with my life crisis. And I remember looking at this towering stack of biology books on my desk, feeling like they're sucking the life out of me. And at first, I assumed, you know, I'm just being lazy. But eventually, eventually I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Hmm. Maybe I'm on a path somebody's placed me on, and I'm just rolling down. How do you know the difference? I didn't know the difference. But the first, and this is the thing, questions are the seed of change. So the second that question even enters your mind... You know, as long as you're lucky enough to not drink it away or not to eat it away and bury it, if you just let that seed sit there, you're in for a fucking adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And what, and just timeline here, what year was this? Yeah. Like, what, what year did you graduate high school? This is, this is all about 10 years. Ago. So I graduated high school in 2010. I'm in college. Oh, no way. Same. Followed, followed to that. Wow. Okay. Amazing. So you, yeah. so you get the time zone. The time period. So, you know, I'm going through this, what I want to do with my life crisis. And at first I assumed, you know, I'm being lazy, but then I began to wonder, you know, I'm not on my path. So naturally I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just assumed, you know, there had to be a book out there with some answers. So I was just ripping through, you know, business books and biographies and self-help books, assuming there had to be a book, not on a particular age in life, but really a stage, you know, when no one's taking your calls, no one's taking your meetings. How do you find a way to break through? Yeah. And eventually I was left empty handed. So that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. I thought, well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? 
you know, I was really naive. I thought I would just call Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else. It'll be done in a few months. That I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund this journey. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of our mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, and you're from SoCal, so you'll appreciate this. You know, two nights before finals, you know, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. You know, I'm on Facebook and I'm on, I'm on Facebook and I see somebody offering free tickets to The Price is Right. Now I'm going to school at USC, not too far from where the show films. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. Yeah. I'd seen bits and pieces when I was homesick from school in fourth grade. Of never course, seen a full episode yeah. of the show before, right? So I tell myself it's a dumb idea to not think about it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where, you know, no matter how ridiculous an idea, for some reason, it keeps clawing itself back into your mind. So almost to prove to myself this is a bad idea, I remember I was like sitting in the, I was sitting in the library at this round wooden table in the corner of the library. And I opened up my spiral notebook and I wrote, you know, best and worst case scenarios. You know, to prove to myself it's a bad idea. And I remember writing, you know, worst case scenarios, you know, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, no, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it's almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I started to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy. And I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling that boat. And that's how I funded the book. And that's how the journey set off. No way. So how do you hack the prices right, bro? That's really all anybody listening wants to know. <laughs> it's like an insane like 30-minute story. But essentially, the core of it in five seconds is that there is an undercover producer who interviews everyone in the audience before the show goes. And if you think about it, there's 300 people in the audience of The Price is Right. For those who know how the show works, eight of those audience members get called down to a podium. And then out of the eight at the podium, one goes on to win. So if you run the numbers, the hard part, statistically, is going from 300 to eight. The rest is just one out of eight. You know, it's a roll of the, the dice. You know, it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's still hard, but it's possible. Mm -hmm. So I spent my whole all-nighter trying to hack how to make sure and guarantee I went, I made it past the 300 to the eight portion. Um, but yeah, the whole Price is Right story is ridiculous. And, you know, you have to understand too, I, you know, won a sailboat, sold it for, I think, 17K and thought I was a billionaire. You know, <laughs> I was like taking all my friends out to lunch, you know, free guacamole for everybody. You're you know, a baller, bro. I was, yeah, I was a baller. baller. I had cash. No one else had cash on them. I felt really good. Uh, and, you know, it took two years from that point to finally interview Bill Gates. It took three years to track down Lady Gaga. And when I had started the journey, when I had started the journey, there was no part of me looking for that, you know, one key to success. You know, we've all seen those business books or those TED Talks, and normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening over seven years of interviews, they started realizing every single one of these people treated life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, and where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, you're in Vegas, you know that line, you, you people standing out, hoping the bouncer lets them in, that's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. For some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in, either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I've learned 
And what I'm sure you've seen in your career over and over is there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. So funny you say that, man. That terminology and verbiage is almost exactly what I tell my clients about getting people booked on their shows is that is that it's almost never going to be the way that you think it is, but there's always another way. And you have to be, you have to be the person that's willing to go try another way. You got to go try out the back door and then you got to go put a window, put, put a ladder up to the second story window and pick the lock and get in. Yeah, there's right. more than one way into the house. Make friends with the yeah. chef or whatever it is. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, so, so when you set out to write the book, did you have the title in mind? Did you have any of this in mind? Or were you just like, I just want to see if I can download some information from super smart people and tell other people about it? No, it's funny. You know, it sounds so weird in hindsight, but the truth was literally, I did not have a thesis in mind. It was the, it was the second option you just gave. I was like, let me just go talk to all of them. Yeah. I, there was no part of me that was looking for something in common. Cause if you're talking to, you know, Pitbull and Bill Gates, you're not really looking for something in common. Yeah. When you're looking at, you know, with respect to both of them, when you're speaking to the poet Maya Angelou and the author Tim Ferriss or the boxer Sugar Ray Leonard or the actress Jessica Alba, you're not looking for something in common. What you're looking for is just what made them work, what made yeah. them be able to achieve their dream. But what ends up happening, I'm sure you've seen it with your podcast too, is when you just have these conversations over and over and over again. Uh, you know, I'm a big music fan. It's almost like there's a common melody yeah, that is totally. unavoidable. Um, yep. So it took, let's say about three, three to four years into the journey, about three years into the journey for me to finally start putting words to this melody I kept hearing in every conversation. You know, the lyrics were different, but the melody was the same. What were you doing in the meantime? During that time, like three years, I mean, seven years of doing these interviews, like how, how are you making money? The are you still going years, to school? Did you drop out of school? Yeah. The first two years I was in school, um, I ended up dropping out, not because I didn't like school, but because my dream was to go write this book I was dreaming of reading. What ended up happening is I, it took a year to get in contact with Bill Gates' office, but essentially they said, look, if you don't have a publishing deal, we can't even consider it. We can't even yeah. guarantee it, but we yeah. can't even... We can't even, the conversation, it's a non-starter. So I was like, oh, how hard could that be? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a 19-year-old, right? I, I don't even know what, you know, the publishing industry is. So, you know, that was about the first two years. And after about two years of working on it, I pretty much was about at the 90, you know, at the 90-yard line of getting that publishing deal. My junior year of college, this is like a little inside baseball, but the junior, my junior year of college was starting and I just knew, um, I just had this life philosophy and it sometimes eats at me even saying it because sometimes I don't walk the talk with it. But the truth is like, it is hard enough to succeed at one thing, to try to succeed at two things at the same time. Woo. And I just knew me even being on campus and even, even if I was phoning it in, I would be cutting away at the chances of getting this publishing deal already when all the odds were stacked against me. Yeah. So drop out of college, secure the publishing deal. Eight Next. days later. How many days? Eight days. <sighs> magic of like focus. A, yeah, like a Hanukkah miracle. The magic of focus. Now, right now there's a thing I've been working on for eight months, but there's something about uh, having homelessness as a possibility finally staring you in the... And I say it jokingly, but dude, for real, I, you know, I, I didn't have a backup plan. Yeah. Um, you know, thank God I had, you know, I'm privileged enough to have parents where I could sleep on a couch and have sure. food. Sure. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. I don't want to pretend I don't. But yeah, 
Now, my parents had two mortgages on the house. There was no, uh, there was no trust fund there. So it was so, either do or die. Yeah. So you're telling me that that seventeen thousand from the prices right was gone by that point? I ate that shit up real fast. <laughs> <laughs> now, to just, be fair, just though, one I was of those out, club nights. Yeah. You know, I was well. No, I was going Spirit Airlines. I was, you know, again, Chipotle was my most expensive meal. I was, I was stretching. Oh yeah. Uh, That's Chipotle's yeah. premium, bro. Chipotle's premium. That's Chipotle's premium, premium back then. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's get back to the original thing that I brought up: credibility, authority. Your, if you, I mean, I can do the math. We graduated same year. You're probably what 29, 30? 29, 29, okay, 29. So you're 29 years old currently, yet you are an international bestseller. Book's been translated into a dozen different languages. Sold who knows how many copies. You've done extremely well for yourself. You got a lot of speaking gigs, consulting gigs. You, you know, make good money. All of this is done off of a single book. But the thing is, your book came out, and during that same year, approximately half a million other books came out. <laughs> so being a first-time author in your, yeah. you know, what, mid-20s when it was released? Late, late, I guess late 20s, maybe? I was 25, yeah. Yep. What do you attribute the fact that your book did so well to? Uh, my answer to this question would really piss off 18-year-old Alex. Because 18-year-old me was very adamant that the success of a product launch has everything to do with the hackiness and creativeness of the marketing plan. And my answer would just really piss off me when I was younger. But I'll just say it. It's crazy that it's crazy that I even have resistance to say because for so many years of my life, I was adamant this is the wrong answer. Dude, 80% of it is that it's a, I, I know this sounds cocky, but it's just, you know, I'm, just, I'm not going to be immodest. It's a really well-written book. Now, I'll tell you where the, I said 80%. I'll tell you where the other 20% came in. And again, the 80%, are re, there's a lot of really well-written books that don't go anywhere. Now, there's a lot of uh, really poorly written books that go far. Yeah, right. You know, um, we, we've seen them. Uh, we see them every day. But I'll say is, you know, it sounds like maybe, I know 18-year-old Alex would be much inter- much more interested in the 20% that I'm referring to here. Sure. And yeah. I can tell you, the 20% is literally the thesis of your podcast, which is all I had going for me because I didn't have a big platform. I didn't have a platform really, period. Yeah. Um, I had some press mentions here or there, but it was essentially just to make me not look like a random nobody, but it wasn't <laughs> enough. It wasn't enough to make me somebody, you know, it was enough. So if someone Googled me, it wasn't empty. Right. Um, but it wasn't, you know, super legit or anything like that. The 20% was essentially over the course of the seven year journey, sharing the message with enough people that there were some people who I didn't have the ability to hit up CNBC, but I knew somebody who had been on CNBC. I didn't have the ability to, uh, call Oprah Winfrey and put me on the Oprah Winfrey networks website, but I knew somebody who did. Uh, now, unless you're Barack Obama, knowing somebody who can do it isn't enough. You know, Barack Obama, and he, you know, God bless him, he actually, in my opinion, wrote a really good book, but he could have written a horrible book. And because of who he is, it doesn't really matter. He can just sort of pull the levers. Yep. He can call up Oprah and say, I'm going to be on your show. And even if Oprah thinks the book is bad, she'll put him on the show. 100%. When you're 25, when you're 45, when you're 65, it doesn't matter. When you are proving yourself to the market, it better be good. Mm. Um, it really better be good. 
because uh, again, unless you're famous, unless you have a giant podcast, unless unless you have some kind of leverage, which I didn't, yeah, your network is enough that they'll pick up the phone. Exactly. So that's that's exactly the point that I'm. They'll, they'll pick up right. They'll pick up the phone, but I pretty much had to come to the realization while I was writing the book of like, shit, just because I know these people, if I, what are they going to do, right? Look, you have a podcast. If I said, yo, I want to be on your show. I have a new book coming out. I'm a 25-year-old. Maybe if I'm like friends with one of your friends, you might just out of being nice to your friend, accept the email. But what are you going to say? Send me a galley of the book. Yeah. Or you'll have it go to someone on your team. If you open that first page and it just smells like a shit sandwich, yep. I, you don't even owe me a response. You don't even owe me a no thank you. It's just right. boom, gone. You're on to your next thing. Yep. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So I knew that my network was enough to get me. And by the way, the network took seven years of talking to people and pouring my heart out into meeting people and going to events and having for every 10 people that thought I was a nice guy, there was 90 that thought I was a douche or <laughs> annoying or overly energetic. And you just sort of roll with it. Yeah. But the 80% of the 20% go hand in hand. They, what I've learned is they can't be separated. You can't just be this pure artist that just only makes hits and put it on your bookshelf and hope people will break into your house to read it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the flip side is you can be super famous. You can have the best network in the world. And all that guarantees you is a really good first week. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the the point that I was that I was really making, bro. Is like when you didn't have the credibility, it was about the credibility of the people that you interviewed in order to get the information to write the book, right? Like, it, it, like in the 
in the pitches, if you got an introduction to somebody, yeah. it wasn't about Alex Benayan. It was like, oh, this is my buddy Alex, who has interviewed people like Bill Gates and Maya Angelou and all these other people. And from that knowledge, from that information, he was able to extract their ideologies about how to live a good life and put them into this book in a really well-written way. Like, th- if nobody knows who you are, find out who they know and get in touch with those people is basically like, I mean, that was really my strategy to build my podcast. It was a podcast instead of a book, uh, but it was essentially the same thing. It's like, look, I don't know. I know, I know nobody knows who I am. You know, nobody knows who Travis Chapel is, but I can, I found that people tend to care a little bit more about who you are. If you are bringing them information from somebody that they care about knowing or getting to know or learning from. Mm-hmm. And in that process, not only do you get to share credibility and, you know, boost the trust that's in your name, but you also learn at an exponential rate comparatively to anybody else that's getting in touch with those people, right? Yeah. I realized very quickly that I'm the first reader of my own book. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm guinea pig number one. Uh, and what's actually crazy that I couldn't have expected, like my best friends were readers, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, right? Um, and it's just, it was a huge gift. And it actually, I don't know if you resonate with this, but it was one of my surprising motivations that came not in the beginning of the process, but towards the end. I was so grateful for the ability to learn what I had learned in those mm. interviews that when the going got tough and it got very tough. What pushed me through was the thought of it would be, in my opinion, morally unfair for me to just sit on these experiences and this information. Almost uh, turns into like a calling at that point. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to be in the presence of these great minds. And if I don't distill this information and give it to other people, what good was it? I was seeing how it was changing my life. Mm. I was seeing how it was changing my best friend's lives. Yeah. Like, Bro, I don't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know how to do any. And I was starting to almost, you know, embark on this quest where I was not only learning what I needed to learn, I was being inspired. And probably the biggest thing that I learned over the whole 10 years of research is that you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. Mm. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. Yeah. And that happened to me. It happened to my best friends during the writing of the book. And I just knew in my soul that if I could just push through and keep pounding the pavement uh, to share these messages with people, they might have the same transformations I had. Um, and it's been really, really fulfilling to see it play out. They have to experience a quick win, right? Like some sort of a win that that it, it's not just information at that point. It's information applied. And when they applied that information, it has a positive effect. And then when you can look at that positive effect and see evidence of this information that's changed the way that your, their quality of life, it's just a snowball at that point where you just keep kind of seeking more of that out. And that's really starts to change the way that people decide to, to live their lives essentially um, at that point. So uh, if you're talking to entrepreneurial audience, people that are looking to grow their business, grow their influence, grow their knowledge base. Uh, What would your advice be to them having come through a seven-year journey for a single product, one single piece of content? A lot of people, especially in the content creation space, will have 38 initiatives in seven years. Uh, But you focused hard on one thing. And in that seven-year process, 
built a really great product that's honestly been the cornerstone of your entire brand now for the past you know four or five years. Uh, what, what, would, what would be your advice to those entrepreneurs that are listening to this? You know, I'm not a big, you know, there's obviously the third door philosophy in general, but when it comes to someone specific, for some people, it gives them life to be working on 37 different things. For me, it gives me anxiety. <laughs> uh, dude, you give me four things to work on. I'm feeling anxious. Yeah. Yeah. Two, I'm struggling to keep afloat. Um, so it's not about what's right or what's wrong. It's also about what you want. One of the greatest things I learned from Steve Wozniak is he just looked at me and said, most people never stop once in their life. Take out a sheet of paper and write down their own definition of success. Not once. Some people live 80 years and never do that act one time. Mm -hmm. And ideally, you're doing it every couple of years. Right. Where you're turning your phone off for an hour and saying, you know, how am I, how am I going to grade myself on success? Knowing yourself first and foremost. Right. Yeah. And what's amazing is that we do a great job of asking other people how to succeed without ever asking ourselves, what would success look like for us? Mm. And instead we just, without even knowing, are inundated implicitly by messages around us of what success is. It's the private jet. It's the partner that looks like this. It's the house that looks like this. It's the bank account that looks like this. Uh, dude, I just meet people who have sold their companies for hundreds of millions who come to me literally with eyes sunken in saying, why do I still feel miserable? Yeah. Fundamental misunderstanding of yourself, right? You're, you're looking at the, you know, you get to the top of the mountain, look over and realize that you put in all this work and effort to climb the wrong mountain. And, uh, for someone else, for someone else's approval. Right. Right. Um, curious, man, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, your successes and the, and the people that you did get to sit down with an interview. Is there anybody on that list that you were never able to get in front of that you wish oh, you could yeah. have had a conversation with? Hundreds. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> tell us one of those Hundreds. stories. Well, I'll tell you though. I'll tell you the most painful one. I don't know why I did that to myself, but sure. Let's go into it. The most Definitely the most embarrassing too. And it's a good lesson though. It's a good lesson for me. I don't know if it's a good lesson for anybody else. It's a good lesson for me to remember. We'll find uh, out. But, you know, I will say though, I would imagine a lot of people listening to this show are quite similar in the DNA that you and I have, which is we like to pound the pavement. We don't like to sit back and let life happen to us. We like to happen to life. Yep. There is a dangerous downside of that kind of lifestyle. And I had to learn it the hard way. Let's hear it. So this is my eight-month quest to get to Warren Buffett. And the context of this story is I had already spent about a year chasing Bill Gates. It wasn't working out. And I had a thought of, well, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are best friends. And Warren Buffett just seems like a much nicer, more accessible guy. Whenever he's on CNBC, he's always talking about how you know, he loves the next generation. He meets with college students all the time. You know, Bill Gates is in his ivory tower. Warren Buffett is accessible. He's in Omaha, Nebraska. He talks about how he just goes to the Dairy Queen for lunch. Like, I can get an interview with that guy. So I end up spending about two months reading every single book I possibly can on Buffett. Wake it up at, you know, 6 a.m., go into my office. Um, I just dropped out of school at this point. So I'm, you know, reading the books by day, listening to the podcast at night, staying up until midnight, watching every YouTube video. I am just in this Warren Buffett tornado. 
trying to get as much information as I can. So when I finally write this interview request to him, it is just the best request he's ever read. About two months later, I handwrite this this request. I mail it to his office and I get an email from his assistant a few days later saying, Warren read your letter and wrote a response back. And I am hearing the choir sing hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) Alex is a genius. He, He hacked the system. This is amazing. And sure enough, I open up the, she had like scanned, he had handwritten the response and then the assistant had scanned it, emailed it as a PDF. And I open up this PDF and I see Warren Buffett's, you know, handwriting, you know, big loopy blue letters. And it says, dear Alex, um, you know, congrats on your mission. Too much on my plate to grant all requests. My life has been covered many times over. Wishing you the best, Warren e. Buffett. On the one hand, it feels like I just got punched in the gut and want to fall over. But another part of me was like, if he's handwriting a response back, he must love me. You know, the guy gets hundreds of letters a day. He's not responding to every. He must love me. I must have just like worded the ask the wrong way. I need to just, you know, pound on that door a few more times. And I had set in my mind that persistence was the key to success. And I will not stop asking Warren Buffett for an interview until I get the yes. And then it was one of the biggest mistakes in my life. So what ended up happening is I started waking up at 4 a.m. You know, I am like sprinting down the sidewalk, listening to Eye of the Tiger, imagining Warren Buffett's at the end of the sidewalk. I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm going very far, you know, into the deep zone. And, you know, I'm writing letter after letter after letter after letter. Every Wednesday morning, I'm calling his assistant, Debbie, asking if there's a change of heart. You know, when you have four months of straight rejections, you want to, you know, kneel over. When you have six months of straight rejections, you want to cough up blood. And finally around, I think it was month six or seventh or eight, I'm on the phone with Warren Buffett's assistant, Debbie, again on a Wednesday morning. And for some reason, one day she just was like, look, Alex, I know Warren. And I know when he says no, the answer is no. So how about though, as my guest, you come to our annual shareholders meeting. And for those of you who are listening, I'm sure many of you know, Warren Buffett is not only the most successful investor in financial history, but his annual shareholders meeting is legendary. It is the you know Super Bowl of capitalism. Um, and the only way you can get tickets is if you're a shareholder in the company, which I wasn't. I didn't have the money. Price is right money doesn't allow for that. So I'm like, oh my God, Debbie, that would be amazing. I would love that. And she goes, great. Yeah, you can even bring some friends. I'm like, great. Can I bring like five friends? She's like, yep, I'll send you six tickets as my guest. And while I was on the phone with her, I said, because I'd done my research, I said, Debbie, isn't it true that people at the shareholders meeting get to ask Mr. Buffett questions during the Q&A portion? And she goes, Alex, 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 I know what you're thinking, but it's not possible. There's only 30 people who get to ask questions and there's 30,000 people in attendance. It's a lottery system, so your odds are one in a thousand. You know, I wouldn't get your hopes up. What Debbie doesn't know about me is I'm the king of hopes up. So I, with my five childhood best friends, you know, descend upon Omaha, Nebraska. All six of us are standing, you know, one room at the Motel 6. And we get to Buffett Shareholders meeting at four o'clock in the morning. We're waiting in the blistering cold front of the line. There's thousands of people in line already at four o'clock in the morning. 7 a.m., the doors open and you, I, you sort of have to picture this. Just thousands of grown men pushing and shoving, you know, ties flopping in the air, briefcases waving all over the place, people shouting, pardon me, pardon me. You know, it's a business casual running of the bulls. And, you know, we get in there and me and my friends, you know, we're of course like the youngest of the group. So we're jumping down staircases, sliding down railings. We get right to the front, get great seats. But we realize 
okay, we're here, but we still don't have a plan. And if there's one thing I learned from The Price is Right, it's that there's always a way. So I told four of my other friends to hold the chairs and me and one of my smartest friends, Ryan, he's like a financial whiz. I was like, bro, you're coming with me. We're going to go figure this out. So we start running around asking all the volunteers how the lottery system works. And eventually we gather enough data where we have a theory that we find a loophole in Warren Buffett's lottery system. And sure enough, we tested this loophole. And out of the six of our friends, four got winning lottery tickets. And that's how we asked our questions to Warren Buffett in front of 30,000 people. The only problem is Warren Buffett is a very smart guy. And after the first 19-year-old in like ripped jeans and a t-shirt who asked a question from his like detailed question from his past, I think he got suspicious. By the second one, he started really dodging the questions. By the third one, he was like turning the audience on us. And by the time my fourth friend went up, Warren Buffett just shut down the whole shareholders event. He shut down the whole event? He ended the Q&A right then and there. He's like, you know, I think this is a great time to end. Thank you, everyone. So wait, you weren't one of the four? No, I was. I, I was. Oh. I asked the first question, but essentially, gotcha. while we got a little, while he answered, he he was dodging the questions. He, you know, it's sort of like going up against, you know, Muhammad Ali in a boxing ring. Yeah, it doesn't matter how good you think you are, you're right. not gonna you're not gonna turn it on him when he has home court events. You know. Right. So sure enough, it actually ends up backfiring in our face, ending in disaster. We thought we had won and hacked the system. It ends in disaster. But again, as life would have it, a month later, I end up getting the interview with Bill Gates through a completely different way. And the interview with Bill Gates went so well that at the end, when it was done, Bill Gates' chief of staff said, Alex, we love what you're doing. How can we help? When Bill Gates' office asks you, how can you, how can we help? You take out a very long list. <laughs> And of course, I literally took out my list and at the top of the list, it said Warren Buffett. And the chief of staff looked at that and said, oh, that one's easy. You know, Bill and Warren are best friends. That one's easy. Let's work. Let's work. Let's focus on the other ones. That one is a no-brainer. I will never know exactly what happened. But a week later, I get an email from Bill Gates, the chief of staff that says, dear Alex, no more contact to Warren's office. Thank you. And in that moment, it was the knockout punch. Yeah. Where I realized not only was the answer no, I was blacklisted. And I had to learn a lesson that no business book ever talks about. There is a such thing as over persistence. Mm. Persistence, I always assumed was knocking on a door a hundred times. But what I had to learn is that if you knock on a door a hundred times, they put a deadbolt on and call the police. Yeah. Persistence is about knocking on a hundred different doors. Yeah. And I had to learn the hard way that it's possible to dig yourself into such a deep hole that even Bill Gates can pull you out. That is a fantastic way to get this thing wrapped up, bro, because that is, <laughs> I mean, I, I love the thing about that you said about persistence. It's, it's, it's not just pounding on the same door a hundred times, it's about pounding on a hundred different doors. And I think uh, sometimes people can get so in their minds about, no, I, I need this one to happen. This one has to be the one. And it's like, well, look at all of the other people that we've mentioned in this call that you were able to sit down with, like Bill Gates and Maya Angelou and Jessica Alba and all these different people that are all, you know, A-listers in their right and are all people that increase the credibility of your book, all people that you can extract really great information from and benefit your readers more with. It's And to your own point earlier, saying that, oh, I mean, there's hundreds, you know, there's a couple of hundred people that we tried to reach out to to, to get conversations with that we weren't able, that we did not have success with. 
But that's the, per, that's the point of persistence that people forget about is like, you know, they, they, they get started with something and they have this idea of these four people that they're going to interview or these four people they're going to sell or these four people they're going to partner with and, uh, and how they're going to become famous in a matter of months after that. And right. they go approach those, those four people, those four opportunities, those four insert, like fill in the blank and they don't work out the way that they want them to work out. And then they just go, well, this just doesn't work. You know, ah, well, you know, that's a scam. You know what I mean? It's my favorite one is when people just call something a scam because they didn't know how to work it well enough. Um, but, uh, but at the end of the day, the, the answer is you just got to stay in the game longer. Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to make that particular shot, but it doesn't mean that you can get another one later on. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show, bro. I got to ask you this one question because it's one I ask a lot of people that come on and then I'll let you go who, you know, or what, you know, Alex, which of those two do you think is the more important asset in life and why? Mm. You know, what's interesting. You said in life and you didn't say in business in life. The second you asked the question, and this wouldn't have been my normal answer. It's who, you know, because what I'll tell you, and it's normally not what you would imagine the answer would be because who you know is your family or who you know is your best friends. When you're on your deathbed, you know, it's not what you know that's going to fill your heart. It's the relationships you made, the friendships, the adventures, uh, the love, the loss. Uh, and at the end of the day, we're spiritual beings who want to succeed so we can, you know, enjoy the time with our loved ones even more. Uh, so many times, and I wish I knew this when I was younger, it's the people who are already sitting in your house that you want to be spending the most time with. It's the friends you haven't seen in a few years uh, that's going to feel the best to reconnect with. Um, so that's, that's who you know. Love it, bro. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a really fun conversation. I know everybody's going to really benefit from this one. Before you go, uh, where's the best place for people to go connect more with you, learn more about you? Yeah. And I just want to say too, I, I appreciate this a lot. And it was really fun to talk with someone with such similar DNA. You know, if you enjoyed the conversation and, you know, you want to reach out on Instagram, on Twitter, it's the same. It's at Alex Benayan. And the book, The Third Door is wherever you like to get books. So audio, uh, audible, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you like it, it's it's there. The Third Door. If you're listening right now and you have not yet picked up a copy of Alex's book, please do it right now so you don't forget. Right now, that does not mean later. That means right now, unless you're driving. Be responsible, but if you can pick it up right now, pick it up right now. I know you will not regret um, reading it or listening to it. Um, then go follow Alex on all social channels, you know, see what he's up to, connect to them at an event that he's going to, he's speaking at, something like that. Um, that's at Alex Benayan, uh, B-A-N-A-Y-A-N, Alex Benayan on social media, and then go pick up a copy of The Third Door. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time, man. This is a blast. Thank you, man. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.